Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. They take swords and weapons for everyone, and then they don't know what to do with Swarbrex, so they take his pencil and snap it in half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like small things like that that have me coming back to read Joe Abercrombie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny. It, it is funny, and it's it's not trying too hard. Like, sometimes I feel like in Sanderson books, it's trying a little hard to be funny. Yeah, Joe Abercrombie humor is very tongue-in-cheek. It's very British humor, which makes sense, because he's British. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. What's up, fans of spaghetti western fantasy books? This is another episode of Phantology. I'm Steven. I have Ryan with me, and we're talking Red Country by Joe Abercrombie. Ryan, how's it going? What do you think of this book? It's going well, Steven. It's good to be back. I think Joe Abercrombie has another great grimdark novel. At, well, it's been out for a while, but it's another great addition to his already great series, another standalone book, Red Country. I thought it was a little bit slow at the beginning, but by the ending, I was very enthralled and I really enjoyed it. So we're going to briefly kind of talk high level, no spoilers, then we'll let you guys know when we do spoilers. But I thought this book was interesting and really all of his standalones are interesting because after creating a trilogy that is kind of more typical fantasy, you follow a group of different POV characters through an adventure over three books, like that's pretty typical. We've seen that type of trilogy before. Each one of these different standalones is super different. So Best Served Cold is more of like a vengeance slash heist story. The Heroes is just a battle told over the course of three or four days. And Red Country is a Western from a fantasy setting. So really unique, really interesting the way that he structured the standalones. Yeah, I agree. They're they're very different, but they all have... I think at surface value, you can, you can point out the differences. But at the core, they are all Abercrombie novels with the blood, violence, the not so happy endings, although maybe this ending was a little bit happier than I'm I'm used to with Joe Abercrombie, but I, I, I liked it. Yeah, I would agree. This ending actually seems like some characters are going along a good path, and I, it kind of makes sense for who the characters are. I would say he doesn't necessarily give good characters bad endings he gives characters the endings they deserve and in previous books there's been a lot of not so great characters in this book we actually get some like decent human beings as characters and therefore they get a decent ending yeah and it's uh, you know in the heroes you have lots of decent characters who are just totally inept they don't know how to function or they have serious flaws that that lead to them having poor fates but i think that for the most part the characters in this book are are competent and yeah they get what they deserve which is better than the other good characters deserve if that makes any sense this book is also a little more unique in some of compared to some of his other books because it's a more limited scope of point of views there's only there's really just like two main ones maybe three and a few minor ones but compared to his other books where there were just a sprawling amount of point of views and you got to see the world through lots of different lenses and different, different eyes. This was more unique. And I think that kind of lends it to a a more uh, streamlined narrative. The plot was not super complex and just kind of kept moving. And I think a lot of the characters we have seen in previous novels in minor, minor roles and like, Temple and Nikomo Koska and a few others I don't want to go into uh, two details for risk of spoiling but um, a lot of the I, I feel like with the other standalones there were a lot of brand new characters that we didn't know but the core characters I think with the exception of Shy are all characters that we've seen before have we seen oh I guess we briefly seen Temple before in before they're hanged at Degaska yeah 
Yeah. Okay. We, I, I don't remember the details, but I know that we've seen him before. Or at least his flashbacks indicate that he was there. So like, maybe we saw him, maybe we didn't. I'm not sure on that, actually. At least he's been around the story enough. And I know he has a viewpoint in the collection of short stories called Sharpens that I'm going to, that I'm planning on reading next. You know what? I could be wrong. Maybe we haven't seen Temple before, although he, he did, he was around in the other series, like he was in the world and he talks about where he was. I don't think he was included, actually. I was mistaken about that. Close enough. He's, he's around the events. He seems to know what's going on. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's start talking some plot details. But before we do that, brief plug for Phantology. If you like what we're doing, check us out on social media at Phantology Books, online at www.phantologybooks.com. You can join our Discord and chat with us and let us know the mistakes we're making, like saying that Temple is in the books when he's actually hasn't been before would be a great example of that. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. And we have a Patreon with some different tiers. Consider supporting there. And we just launched a merch shop. So if you'd like to wear some nice apparel and you like Phantology, you can now combine these things. And that's kind of fun. Yeah, I was actually pleasantly surprised um, how some of the merchandise turned out. Yeah, my vision for this is we all get some nice Phantology merch and we show up at the Rhythm of War release party, assuming it happens. It may be canceled for COVID, who knows? But Phantology shows up in force and we have adoring fans flock to us as we stroll through the the crowds. (laughs) Yeah, well, that might be... um... A little bit fantastic, but I, I I think we can shoot for that as a goal. Why not? Yeah, well, we got a few months to get there. Anyway, let's get back to Red Country so plot details. Ryan, you kind of already gave us a content warning, I think, but now you know um, Joe Abercrombie is this grimdark style, and, and you can expect a lot of content in his books. Although, I don't know, this book, there wasn't quite as much. It, it did seem to be a little more lighthearted to some extent. So. Yeah. The the book, the main character, I would say I would say the main character is Shy South. Shy is how old would you say? She's she's kinda like mid twenties, she's seen the world some, she's still on the younger side, she's got a troubled yeah. past that we don't yeah. really know too much about as the book starts, but we get more details. And she lives with her stepfather Lamb, who is this hulking, mysterious Northman, who we're gonna find some stuff out pretty quickly. And she, so she lives with her stepfather and her younger sister, Ro, and her younger brother, Pitt. And they live off in Staric Land, which is off in the western part of the circle of the world. Previously, not a super well fleshed out part of the world. We saw some of it in Before They Are Hanged, when the crew goes on their trip to find the seed. We haven't really seen this part a whole lot. They live in this place called Square Dill, and it's it's like this Wild West setting, like we said. So we're very much on the frontier here. They kind of talk about like, like a gold rush happening, and we're traveling through uninhabited territories. And as the book gets started, we find them going back to their settlement after haggling at the market for a while, and their their homestead is burned. Their friend Goalie, who is watching the kids, has been hanged. And Pitt and Roe, Shai's younger brother and sister, have been kidnapped. They're gone. And the action begins right away. So I thought this was a little similar to Best Served Cult, where right away we have this kind of like idea of we need to get vengeance or we need to solve this bad thing that's happened right away. What do you think of the beginning of this book, Ryan? Yeah, it seemed a little bit cliche that they show up and their farm's been destroyed and people that mean a lot to them have either been killed or taken away. And so now they suddenly have something to motivate them. But it's an interesting introduction to our characters, Shy and Lamb, where Shy is this very entrepreneuring young woman who seems competent and like she knows what she's doing. And she doesn't she doesn't have the best view of her stepdad lamb it seems like she just she just views him as a coward who's very strong so she can just kind of boss him around to to move heavy things 
and he's just docile as a lamb. That's just how he's always been. And it's interesting to see how lamb changes throughout this book. That's that's probably one of the most interesting things about the book, in my opinion. Yeah, and pretty quickly we learned that Lamb is a character we've seen before. Uh, this is something that I want to talk with you more about because I think this is interesting. How Joe Abercrombie slowly reveals that, spoilers for the rest of the book, Lamb is really the long-lost Logan Ninefingers, the Bloody Nine, the brief King of the North who we lost at the end of Last Argument of Kings. He jumped off in the river. We hadn't seen him for two standalone books. And here he is. And we, I mean, we start to realize who he is pretty quickly because he's missing a finger and he has an aptitude for violence that comes out pretty quickly. We see this first when they are tracking down the kidnappers. They go into this tavern and Lamb rips apart a couple of guys to get information. And Shy starts to kind of look at him in a different way. And he says some things that make him seem like Logan. And I was kind of thinking up until about, I don't know, maybe a quarter or halfway into the book. I wasn't sure if it was Logan or not. I thought it might be misdirection. I thought like, no way is it this obvious, but it is like, there's no real twist here. It's, it's Logan. I, I wasn't really in doubt once that first fight at the tavern where they track down those people who are part of the mob and he kind of tears his way through them. Uh, that was, that was, it would be very unlikely, I guess, in my mind that he had turned out to be anybody other than Logan. After that point, he's a four fingered or nine fingered Northman. And we learn later that people are searching out a uh, nine fingered Northman and it's not hard to put two and two together, but I, I could see where you're coming from, where Joe Abercrombie does keep us guessing at points, so why not? I mean, it wouldn't be the most outlandish twist in the world for it to have turned out to be somebody other than Logan, I guess. Yeah, I would say in a typical fantasy book, you would have something like this set up at the beginning, expectations are placed, and then there's some kind of twist where it's like, oh, it's not really what you think it is. But here, it's much more, I guess, you have to be realistic about these things. And if there's a nine-finger dude who's tearing people apart, then yeah, it's Logan Ninefingers. There's no subterfuge here. And yeah, like you said, Shivers, at the beginning of the book, even before this, you learn that Shivers is looking for a nine-fingered man. So there it is. It's Logan. And he has changed in the intervening years to become this kind of docile family man, but at the core of who he is by the end of the book, you realize that, yeah, he still just wants to rip people apart. Yeah. And at the beginning of the book, he at least seems hesitant to give into his violence. He doesn't, he doesn't really want to regress to his old ways, but certainly by the end of the book, he's given up most pretense of not wanting to be violent. He, he's very much so a violent person once again. And it seems like that, but at the very end of the book, he has this conversation with Shai about his feelings when he first came across the homestead burned. And he said he felt joy at the time because he realized that this was like his in. This was his excuse to get back into killing people and being the bloody knife. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I think even though he wanted, he's torn. He wanted it, like he knew that he wanted it deep down, but still the lamb part of him didn't really want that. The family man part of Logan, as small as it may be, didn't want that. I've heard this theory that the Bloody Nine is actually a demon and there's some kind of like crossover with Logan and the whole demon part of the First Law trilogy as well. So I don't know, maybe there is some reasoning, like there is this thing inside of him that wants to come out and he's been holding it down and now it is coming out i don't really know enough about the whole backstory and, and lore of the the demons to really have a great conclusion on on my stance there but it could be an explanation i mean there's there's some reason why he has this berserker state and we don't know it we do know that he can talk to spirits and that's not a common attribute or skill from people in in this world so it's not crazy to think that maybe he has some part demon in him that allows him to to talk to spirits. I kind of forgot about that because he doesn't do any of that in this book. It actually would have been funny 
if he did something like random with the fire spirit because there's that scene where he does that in the blade itself and then i think joe abercrombie is actually like on record saying he kind of forgot about that ability and you never see it again so it would oh, have been really? funny if there was like a small callback in red country yeah that, that would be and just give maybe a little bit more hint as to who who he is in the beginning so we've got lamb kind of outed as logan although none of the characters know it and i don't think throughout the book i don't think they ever say the name logan nine fingers or the bloody nine they come really close a few times when shy asks logan or lambkin as i like to call him who he is but they never actually say the name so that's kind of fun because it's never absolutely on record on the page stated that he is logan but it's like so close right there's no way it couldn't be but at the same time it's fun that they never actually say the name because the characters don't ever really know shy never knows it's just it it's pretty much implied at the end everybody knows but nobody comes out and says it show not tell i guess kind of yeah which is the same with the mayor right increase yeah we never actually say that she's carla den eider mm-hmm. yeah that's true anyway our group of heroes so to speak go to continue to chase after their their missing kin uh, they come across this other kid named leaf who's also also younger brother to the kidnappers they go to the tavern they tear some people apart they get some information they meet up with Dab Sweet, who is this famous scout in the area, and he guides them to this party of adventurers called the Fellowship, who is going off to Crease to search for their fortunes. And that's kind of like the, the intro to the plot. I did also want to mention one other fun thing. Is their oxen are named Scale and Calder? I thought that was funny. A little, yeah. nice little callback to our friends from the Heroes. Yeah, although, I mean, you can probably say Scales is dumb as an animal. You certainly can't say the same thing about Calder. But it shows you kind of what the people in the area think of them. Oh, yeah, that's true. Or they're just popular names. I don't know. Uh, Somehow I doubt that. (laughs) (laughs) So before we talk Fellowship, let's talk the other part of the plot, which is Casca and Temple. So... This actually happens a little bit before some of the intervening action, but Casca and his mercenaries, he's come up with a new mercenary band. This time they're called the Company of the Gracious Hand. And Casca, the infamous soldier of fortune, is aiding the unions in stopping the rebellion in Land. And as the action starts with Casca, they've just had a big attack on this city called Moldova, I think. And Casca's hired by this Inquisitor Lawson, who we have seen in previous books, and Pike, who we've definitely seen. And kind of funny because Pike is Salem Ruse from the original trilogy, and Lawson was in charge of that camp where West gets Pike out of originally. So Lawson was over Pike at some point in the first trilogy, and now Pike is the superior and Lawson is the Inquisitor underneath him. But that's never even really mentioned. It's just kind of like a fun little reversal of fortunes that they've had. So they hire Casca to root out the rebel leader, Comthus, this mysterious figure who is causing trouble for the Union. And so the Company of the Gracious Hand marches across the far country in order to nobly bring peace to the area. Yeah, right, because... They go in and they burn down Square Deal and riot and loot and rape and kill and it's awful. But this is mercenary life for you. Casca hasn't changed too much. No, he always finds himself back in the same place. As much as his circumstances change, whether he's kicked out of the kicked out of his mercenary band like Monza did to him, or whether at the end of Best Served Cold, where he is given some sort of title to land or he's he's in charge of some city i think right and of best served cold yeah uh he is in charge of i want to say viscerine maybe fact check me on that yes at the end he heads to viscerine and he is putting forth a claim for the duchy of viscerine and i don't think it's explicitly explained why he lost out on that but it's just kind of stated that like 
the snake of talons kicked him out and things didn't work out for him in Styria, right? I mean, yeah, towards the end of the book, when I think he and Temple are talking, Costca and Temple, Temple says something along the lines of he hated it being the leader of, or Duke, I guess, the Duke of Viserine. He, he hated it. And so it, it makes you think that he somehow maybe forced himself out because that's kind of what he wanted deep down. Mm, I could see that. That's, uh, that was my interpretation, at least. Yeah. So we see in the intervening years since Best Served Cold, Casca still kind of has this fun outward personality where he's flamboyant and he's always got a lot to say and he's very charismatic and he has this great grin that can just split his face open and make you want to follow him. But at the same time, it seems like on the inside, he's got to be very black hearted. He, he really has no conscience at all. Yeah, he, he's basically rotten to the core, I think. And he treats Temple, so we haven't talked about Temple much, but Temple is his lawyer at the time. We're going to get a lot more of his backstory going forward, but he treats Temple as his conscious. He says, you know, Temple, let me know how things are going here, because I have no idea if it's good or bad that we're killing these people. Right. And even when Temple tries to act as his conscience, he doesn't really listen to him. Yeah, so that happens when Temple, in the next place they visit, which is called Averstock, Temple says... Uh, hey, Casca, rather than just go in and burn this place to the ground, let me go in, try to talk to the people. Maybe we can find the rebels and prevent any undue harm. But rather than give Temple the hour that was promised to him to attempt to solve this through peace, the company of the Gracious Hand rides through pretty quickly after Temple enters and Temple's buddy, Sufine, gets killed and Averstock suffers the same fate. And at that point, Temple, who we've started to kind of build up as somewhat of a good guy that's found himself in some bad situations, he's pretty resourceful. He's had all these different careers through the years, and he's always kind of made things work. He's maybe a little bit of a coward, but he does pretty well for himself, I guess. Like, he's pretty competent, although he's now found himself in a bad situation here as part of the company. Anyway, Temple decides he's had enough and he is out of there. So he deserts and he runs off into the wilderness. This was like a surprising part for me because I remember thinking that Temple would, would kind of be the way that we would view Casca and his actions throughout the book. And then when Temple turns and runs away from Casca, I was a little bit shocked because we hadn't had much experience with Temple before. And... I, I guess I just didn't know where it was going to go. But we do get more throughout the book. Obviously, like this is kind of our introduction to Temple, like seeing him, yeah. seeing him act as Casca's conscience, and then seeing him desert the company rather than just stick it out. Like this is a good decision, but also a bad decision because we're fleeing through the wilderness with no plan, really. But also, it's good because at least he's taking a stand for himself and saying, like, I personally am not going to be part of this. Yeah, it's probably one of the one of the times where he actually did the right thing. He he's constantly lamenting all of the regrets he has in the past from times where he he knew what the right thing was to do, but he went the easy way instead. And so that leads perfectly into the next thing that's going to happen with Temple because he stumbles across another guy who once tried to do the right thing, our buddy Shivers of the previous two standalone books. If you remember from Best Served Cold, he was this hopeful Northman who arrived in Styria wanting to do the right thing, worked out terribly for him. Now he's this real hardened dude who's in the North searching out Logan for some reason. Not sure really yet. So Shivers helps Temple. Temple's pretty much half dead here at this point, starved and, and looking for warmth in this, in this wasteland. And they have a little conversation where Shivers asks Temple, you know, like, how are you trying to do the right thing? I tried to do the right thing one time. Temple asks him, how'd that go? And Shivers says, well, I, I woke up. It didn't really work out. That's not a realistic thing that you can expect to do. Which is the same thing. He says the same thing he says to Kerndon Craw back in The Heroes, right? Where Shivers said, I had a dream to be a better man. And then Kerndon slash Temple says, well, what happened? And then Shivers responds, well, I woke up. Yeah. It's kind of mirror scenes to each other. I, I really like that. 
Yeah, and Shivers takes on a really small role in this book. You really only see him a few times, but it's an important, uh, I, I would say, backstory to what's going on with Logan and with Shivers as well. Yeah. So the next thing that happens with them is they're attacked by ghosts. Ghosts are the name of kind of the native tribesmen in the area, and they attack because they are savages, apparently. And in the attack, Temple falls down a ravine and falls into this rushing river once again this is something that has happened a few times in the series abercrombie likes to launch people off cliffs (laughs) into water and and that's all we know from temple so we wish him the best it's one of abercrombie's plot devices is uh, i I need them to get from point a to point b well what happens they fall off a cliff into a river and the river takes them (laughs) where i need them to go yeah if you've listened to any of our wheel of time episodes you'll know that i don't really love the plot device of the random Trolloc attack that happens a ton at the beginning of the Wheel of Time books. And I guess this is Abercrombie's version of the Trolloc attack. Just push him off the cliff. (laughs) Go into the river, yeah. So pause on that as we go back to Shy and Lambkin and Leaf, who are with the Fellowship. And we learn all about the Fellowship. There are a lot of people in this Fellowship. And honestly, for me, it was a little hard to track because I was listening to the book and there's a lot of names And the names sound a little familiar, but these people are fairly interesting. And they're like this band of people who are looking to make a good life in this new part of the world. They're striking out for the best. Some faces we've seen before briefly, and it's led by this dude who is transporting a portable forge. Um, So we've got this idea of like technology is advancing and civilization continues to be expanding throughout the world, which I think is fun. It's kind of similar to like Mistborn Era 2, where you see the technology pick up and have a direct impact on the plot. Yeah, definitely. So Shy's looking for her her bro and sis, Rowan Pitt still, but has no leads. But what she does find is a man floating down the river on a log who is obviously Temple. So we've already met uh, up our viewpoint characters and Temple joins in with the fellowship because what else can he do? And he's got this debt to pay because it costs money to journey with the fellowship. And Shy pays for him because Shy is a you know pretty good person, and she's she sees the temple seems to be an earnest fellow, even though they don't always get on. They, they they don't get off to the best start, but you can tell there's like kind of something between them. And I I like their relationship quite a bit. Yeah. So the way I view this part, and I guess book to the whole is sort of like the continent of america back way back when you know you said the wild west obviously but these people are entrepreneuring travelers kind of like people traveling the gold rush brought a lot of people west to california and they're sort of split between the the old empire in the west and the union in the east and in the middle, it's no man's land. Both countries are trying to lay claim to this land. And there's obviously the indigenous people, the ghosts, who have lived there for who knows how long. And our main characters, Shy and Temple, are sort of caught in the middle of this. And Casca's on the side of the the Union, where they're trying to root out these rebels. I don't know. That's that's just the feeling I got. You know, they're just like entrepreneuring pioneers traveling across the plains to the west just like desert that's how i imagined it in my mind what about you yeah they're 49ers headed off to san fran looking for the gold yeah but back to your original statement about shine temple i was a little bit annoyed by them because they both kind of have feelings for the other one maybe not to start but we we see from each of their viewpoints that, that they have feelings for the other one, but they're both very uh, stubborn or prideful and that they don't really want to admit to the other person. In Shai's case, she has uh, she's holding Temple's debt over him. So she's kind of like no nonsense, just commanding him around, making sure that he's trying to work off his debt. And from his perspective, she's just this, domineering overlord who's basically made a slave out of him or indentured servant so uh, it's a complicated relationship that annoyed me at points but i i think that ultimately i liked where it ended up 
I thought they had a good kind of will they won't they thing going a bit. I thought one of the best moments was once Temple actually kind of makes it a little bit, has some things work out for him and he shows up and they have this party after the metalworking shop, I guess we'll say, gets built in Crease and he's looking all dapper in his uniform or in his new suit. And Shy's like, oh man, I don't really have any reason for him to stick around anymore because he's paid off his debt. And she's a little heartbroken. Yeah, um, it reminds me a lot, just because I just recently read Name of the Wind, it reminds me a lot of the relationship between Quoth and Devi, in which she's always Ah. holding his debt over him. So not Quoth and Denna, but Quoth and Devi. Yeah, Quoth and Devi. At some points, I was I was kind of thinking, like, is there something between them? But we don't know. Book three hasn't come out. I don't think there is. Well, every woman that Quoth meets loves him. Oh, yeah. Obviously. He's the Typical. most amazing man in the world. <laughs> Typical ladies' man. Unfortunately for Temple, that isn't the case with him. No, although the ladies are really missing out because Temple's a pretty solid guy. One of the best out there in this world. Yeah, but he does have some growing to do. He certainly does it throughout this book. Yeah, well, and we'll talk through a little more of that when we get there, but we're not quite there yet because they haven't yet made it to Crease. Crease is basically San Francisco or some, you know, fill in the blank of whatever gold rush town somewhere in Alaska could, would fit this as well. So in order to get there, they they go through a few things. They go through this bridge. They have a, They survive an attack from a ghost tribe that sweet has actually paid off to attack them because sweet was trying to make a profit off them so dab sweet maybe not necessarily the altruistic scout that we believe him to be there is also this crazy flash storm that comes along and stampedes the cattle so there's a lot of like typical western tropes that are happening here but after all those tropey things happen we make it to crease and crease is basically like a pit of the worst parts of humanity all combined into a city that is slowly sliding into the mud like it's the it's the worst place you'd ever want to be i if you see crease you're gonna smell it from a mile away you're gonna come out blinded it's it's an awful place yeah not a place that i would want to go to under any circumstances I don't know. I can't remember the quote from Obi-Wan Kenobi when he describes the city that they go to in A New Hope, but he says something like, uh, it's like a pit of the worst parts of humanity. And and basically, you can apply that quote here to Kreese. Kreese is off. Stay away. I think the people who arrive, they get the impression that maybe they've been misled a little bit to come to Kreese because it's not what they expected. Yeah. Yeah. If I was on this fellowship and I arrived at Crease and this is what I saw, I'd be like, I paid 150 to get here. Are you kidding me? Yeah. This is terrible. It's not uh, the fellowship that goes to those beautiful elven cities like in the Lord of the Rings. That's for sure. <laughs> complete opposite. Yeah. That's that's a good way to say complete opposite of Rivendell. Yeah. So Crease is ruled by two factions. We've got Papa Ring and we've got the mayor. We already said that the mayor is really Carla Dan Eider, although they don't actually say that, but there's plenty of evidence to to conclude that that is who she is. She has ended up there. And they've got this rivalry. It's been going on for years. And now we're, we're really out of heads here with all of the other pressures from the outside that Ryan described. And in order to settle all these years of hostilities, they've decided they are going to have a fight, but not between them, between their champions. So they have declared trial by combat combat to quote cersei lannister right and papa rings champion is going to be glamic golden who we've seen some he is sadly ended up in crease and the mayor's champion was going to be who knows until lamb fortunately showed up and lamb doesn't take the job right away but like you know as soon as this is brought up you're like okay logan and glamic golden are fighting there's no way around this Right, yeah. I I actually thought that uh, Call Shivers was going to show up and then be like, I want to fight instead of Glamagolden. And then I thought we were going to get a showdown between Shivers and Logan, and that would have been awesome. Ah, that could have tied things together. It would have tied things together in a different way a little bit sooner. Yeah, yeah, but 
No, it, it ended up being Glamma Golden, who wasn't. I didn't really expect him to be who he was, in the sense that from the heroes, I thought he was more of just your typical North bloodthirsty Northman. But in in this book, it seems like he's more, I think, a thoughtful, kind person who was forced out of the North by um, Calder placing the blame on him for killing his father-in-law, which was actually Calder. And he's just trying to get back to his family in the North, I think. So he's, he's a little bit of a tragic character. Yeah, he definitely expresses his regrets on previous actions. He wants to go back. He helps out Shy. He seems like a pretty good guy. He really gets kind of like the Black Dow treatment towards the end of the heroes, where he becomes a really sympathetic character. But previously, this was someone he thought was a brute. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So before the fight happens, Temple gets his time to shine. When he constructs, he, he recalls one of his previous professions as a carpenter, and he's able to make like the finest building around in this new blacksmithing metal workshop for the portable forge. And he sets up the, the, the fellowship, well, some of the fellowship at least, with a nice little shop here. He pays off his debts. He writes up a contract for the mayor. So Temple's looking real good. And they have this party at the new at the new shop. And this is like the single happiest moment in the entirety of any Joe Abercrombie book I've ever read. People are having a great time and there's a reason for it. And the future is looking bright and our characters are coming together. And I don't know, Ryan, like, did you feel like what is going on here? Because this just doesn't feel right. Didn't feel like an Abercrombie novel. That's for sure. Things were a little bit too happy. I was I was a bit confused then, too. Things just were working out. And I think it gave me a sense of foreboding that something bad is going to happen to to make sure that this is a grim, as grimdark as it gets. For sure. I had the same sense of foreboding, and we were both right, because after Temple and Shy finally get together from some of these some of these uh, romantic feelings that have been brewing the next morning, Cantless comes in. I guess we didn't even talk about Cantless, but Cantless is the villain or one of the villains who he, he's the dude who was contracted by the dragon people who will get to to steal the children. So Cantless kicks in the door. Temple cowardly dives out the window rather than protect his woman, who he kind of loves at this point. And and Shy is taken hostage by Cantless. And at the same time, the fight between Lamb and Golden is happening now. Shy is, is captive. Uh, Savian has his chance to shine. Savian's another member of the Fellowship. He's kind of this mysterious figure. We get the sense that uh, he is actually the rebel leader, Conthus. But that's going to be... We're going to have a twist on that towards the end. Anyway, Savian slash believed to be Conthus comes in, saves shy and then the fight between logan and golden happens and logan brutally kills glam and golden like at first it looks like golden's got a chance because he's a little bit younger and he's this hulking northman as well but then uh logan can you just take punch after punch and nothing's happening to him and people are starting to get real unnerved and yeah lamb just rips him apart it's pretty brutal yeah it's your typical nine fingers fight where Logan appears to be losing at the beginning and then it just really awakens the bloody nine in him and out he comes and not really anything can stop him. And Glamma Golden was certainly unable to stop him in this case. And neither is really anyone else increased because the whole town just basically falls apart. I mean, it was already falling apart, but even worse because now the mayor's people are going out and killing all of Papa Roach's Papa Roach. Papa Roach. How, did I say Papa Roach before too? <laughs> I don't think so. I might have. It's Papa Ring. This is not a band. But they, they're killing all of Papa Ring's people and Papa Ring is hung. Eventually the mayor seizes control. And this pretty much wraps up this portion of the plot. And now we go off to the next thing, which is like we're finally going to save Rowan Pitt. This is something that's happened to me a few times while reading Joe Abercrombie's books, 
in which I think I know which side is right and that I want them to win and I'm cheering for them. And then at the end when they win, some circumstance or event leads me to realize, oh, maybe, well, I, I definitely wasn't aware of everything else that was going on underlying. And I don't know if this person was actually the best person to, to win. And that's how I felt at the outcome of the duel, not necessarily the duelists themselves, um, although I was a little bit sad that Golden was killed, just with Papa Ring and the mayor. At first, the mayor seems like the the noble person, whereas Papa Ring just hires thugs. And he, uh, Papa Ring, at least at the end, he seems to have some sort of code of conduct. I, I think he was just thinking to himself that after he wins the fight, he was gonna, he had given his word, so he was going to let the mayor leave. Whereas at the end of the fight, after the mayor had won, she doesn't do anything of the sort. She just immediately kills Papa Ring. And I guess, I guess it just shows how ruthless she is. Whereas Papa Ring actually has some sort of sense of honor to his actions. The mayor didn't. Yeah, that's a good question. Would Papa have been better than? The mayor. I don't know. I guess that's an open question. But yeah, I think there's probably some evidence to suggest that may have been the case. We don't like him originally because he hired Cantless, and Cantless is obviously a cold-hearted guy who kills people and steals children, which is bad in any sense of the word. So yeah, yeah. But but at the same time, like everyone's kind of black-hearted here, so maybe Papa Ring was the lesser evil. Yep, definitely. Well. I don't know. I could say definitely, but I was left in doubt at the at the end as as to if the the better person won. I would even take that a step further and say I think we should have been cheering for Glamour Golden to kill Lambgen. I mean, Lamb-Gin. it's a it's a little tricky because we've seen Logan in the first trilogy. We've seen through his point of view quite a lot, so we're familiar with him. We're like, yeah, we like Logan. We we've seen him. We've he's been painted as the hero. But now you're getting him in kind of a different light where it's like, this dude is a savage who really needs to be put down. And even though we've seen him, it's like, it's like we got to break up with him at some point. Yeah. It's like, it's like that girlfriend who's always sticking around and you're like, okay, we just got to break up with her because she's not, she's not good for me long term. We need to get rid of Logan. And so we should have been cheering for Golden to win. But I'm going to assume that the majority of readers wanted Logan to win just because of the familiarity with the character. Right. And I think especially with the actions that Logan takes later on in the book, maybe it would have been better if he had ended up dying. So now we go to the dragon people portion of the plot. We've already got some of this previously because we've seen a few scenes through Rose's eyes as she's been kind of slowly indoctrinated by these dragon people. These guys live even further out to the in the uncivilized areas and they are they have they've got this connection with the the old empire they're kind of mysterious really not super well explained although i'm sure there's a lot of the the backstory that maybe i missed out on but their leader is named werdener and they kind of live in these in these caves almost they've got a nice uh, complex set up and we have our heroes well kind of our heroes shy lamb temple and co and co includes casca because casca has showed up in crease as well and we're we're all going to go to the dragon people casca wants the gold shy wants the kids and the action starts as we find wardener logan chases him down and threatens to kill him pretty savagely if he doesn't deliver rowan pit the dragon people send off some of their warriors to take down the outsiders, which would be Casca's men, but Casca is able to kill them all with the help of the cannons that they have. So we've seen the cannons again after their introduction in the heroes. And then Lamb and Shy and Co. attack Ashrank, which is the name of the, the head dragon people city. And and I guess we'll kind of talk about what happens there. But before we do that, Ryan, what do you think of the dragon people? I I kind of like these guys. Like, the, man, they got it. They had a rough after... I mean, you shouldn't kidnap kids, right? Like, that's bad. We can agree. Yeah. But they they seem like pretty good people. 
Uh, yeah. So, I mean, they treated the kids very well after they got them. They kind of accepted them into their family. And the reason why they kidnapped the kids, not that this necessarily justifies it, was because for some reason they aren't able to have their own children. I think it's like something, something in the water. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's been hypothesized it's either just because of like the geothermal activity where they live, or it could have something to do with like the remnants of the magic that's gone on in yeah. the area in millennia past. Yeah, unclear. Even though they did kidnap the kids, they were Werdner treated them well, and he was overall a likable person, I think. And when they if it's either them or the mercenaries of Costco's band, I would definitely pick the dragon people much better than than Costco's mercenaries. Well, if it's the dragon people are literally anywhere else in the red country, I would pick the dragon people because it seems like they have a nice, you know, peaceful, happy existence where everywhere else is falling apart. I mean, compare that to Crease. Are you kidding me? Yeah, but I mean, we don't we don't really know what their ultimate motivation is other than like awakening this mechanical dragon. What what did they intend to do once that dragon was awake? I'm not sure. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. It could have been bad. Just saying. Maybe yeah. Yeah, I guess we don't quite know, but man, they sure seemed earnest, right? Yeah. And yeah, Werdener said, you know, look, I know they're your kids, but they're going to be happiest here. And I think I think he was right. I think they would have been. Yeah, I mean, compared to a life with uh, Shy and Lamb, I mean, maybe Shy could provide a good life for them, but Lamb isn't the best role model in any sense of the word. I guess by the end, Lamb is taken off, and Shy and Temple are setting up shop, and yeah. Rowan Pitt are there. It, it might not. It might not go too poorly for him. We'll see. Hopefully, we will see in in future novels. So Ashrank gets wiped out completely devastated by the good old mercenaries who go and kill everyone burn everything from the ground steal the gold destroy the ancient cool dragon thing and lamb who we're starting to like less and less kills Werdenor and is about to kill ro basically but uh everyone else is able to kind of like pile on top of him well, he was going to kill Roe, but then um, Werdner sacrificed himself for Roe. Right. But even with Werdner having sacrificed, he probably would have continued to, in his you know crazed berserker state, have killed yeah. him. Yeah. It's ironic that the person who set out on a quest for vengeance to get back Roe is the one who Roe needed to be saved from at the end. And before they actually went off to fight the dragon people... There was the scene with Lamb and Werdenor where they were kind of facing off. And rather than say like, oh, I'm going to go in and, and save Roe and save the children, right? Because we got to get the kids back. His motivation for ultimately going to fight is this dude took something from me. He mm -hmm. went up against me and this is about my pride and yeah. you cannot take stuff from me. You can't mess with me and expect to get away from it. He's lost sight of most of the things that made him good, I think. So Roe doesn't like this, and she was pretty much convinced that Werdener and the dragon people were the, the people for her. She thought she'd be happy there, and so she tries to run away immediately, but she's unable to. And the crew all returns to Beacon, which is kind of like this midpoint city that is, I don't know, somewhat like of an outpost between, uh, between the dragon people and Kreese. And the mercenaries celebrate their big victory. They've got all this gold. They've got a lot of gold, apparently. Like, it's looking real good. Costco is trying to figure out how to distribute the gold without everything falling apart. And then the other part of the plot with the rebels kind of rears its head because Lawson comes in and says, we need our rebels. Where's our rebels? And Savian is revealed to be Conthus, or so we think. And so we imprison him. And then Sweet and Shy and Lamb and the kids are going off home. And it looks like the plot's pretty much wrapped. Like, okay, Sabian was captured. The mercenaries made it off. Okay. Like, honestly, the book could have ended there. It would have been somewhat of a story. I'm glad it didn't because there's still more to be told here. But I did think it was kind of interesting how the plot was chunked up so much where like separate parts were really kind of inclusive stories to themselves. Yeah. Each, each part has a, has a little soft ending, I guess you'd say. So this part picks up, the action is we got to save 
Savian, but really the action is like Lamb wants to fight more. So Lamb goes back and he puts himself in harm's way and he busts uh, Savian out. Shy goes back with Temple and they steal the gold and run the wagon off and, and get into some fights and some chaos of their own. And then there's this really exciting, really good action scene, probably the best action scene from the book when Lamb and Savian are defending this fort that they're surrounded in and the cannons are firing on them and people are trying to come in and, and you get kind of this terrifying viewpoint of Lamb from other people's perspectives who are trying to come in and kill him and they like slowly get snuffed out. That that was a very exciting part, that showdown between Costco's mercenaries and Lamb and Savian teamed up against them. That was pretty cool. It's like Costco continued to send more and more people in and they continue to not return. <laughs> right. So Savian gets killed. He succumbs to his, his wounds. Lamb escapes. This is, He's impossible to kill, I'm convinced. And it's revealed that Savian was not, in fact, Compthus. Compthus was his niece, or at least posing as his niece. This is Corlin. So Corlin is really Compthus. And the real Compthus and her rebels come in and take the gold. So Casca and his men don't get any of the gold, and that's not going to sit well with them. And they show up back at Crease in force. They want the gold, but they are tricked in one of the funnest moments of the books. They're tricked by the mayor who has hired Lestek, Yosef Lestek, who is one of the members of the fellowship to pose as this imperial legate guy, one of the war leaders of the old empire. And the old empire is at odds with the union and Casca's men are under strict orders to not interfere with anything going on with the old empire. So they're basically driven off and, and the mayor and, and Kreese retain their sovereignty away from the union using this clever ploy. So uh, the gold is taken by the rebels. Casca is arrested because of his just haphazard dealings and, and not in, in violation of his contract with the union. And it kind of seems like everyone's won a little bit. Like we're starting to see people get their just desserts a bit, especially with Casca. By this time, Casca was another one similar to Logan where I liked him. You, you like him because you've seen him so much. But by the end, you're like, this guy's a jerk. Let's just get rid of him. He's terrible. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. Did you, what did you think when um, they were in the process of tricking Costco? Did you see through the, the trick? No, I thought it was, it was really nicely done. And I was, it had a nice payoff when you realized that, oh, yep, Lustig said he had one more great performance in him. And it worked out because they talked about the old umpire previously, even though they're still kind of this like nebulous um, entity like Old Empire, I don't really understand it super well, but the trick was fun. I actually did. I mean, at first, I, I didn't realize it, but towards the middle of that scene, I did start to suspect that it was Lestek dressed up in in disguise. I thought it was a fun little part of the book where they um, they trick the Inquisition and the mercenaries to get out of there. I'm infamously totally inept. From catching on to ploys like this. So I'm not surprised that I didn't pick up on it. <laughs> so now we're pretty much in falling action. Uh, there's a few more things that have to happen. And uh, a few nice wrap ups to a few more characters. So we all kind of head back to some of the less far away country. And Casca and Friendly had been captured by the Inquisition. But they escape and they come back and threaten Lamb and Shy one more time. Because they still want the gold. Let's have the gold already. And Temple is able to talk him down. And then Casca finally gets the ending that he deserves. He is killed by Swarbrick, who we haven't talked about at all, but he's kind of this comedic relief. He's the comedic relief to Casca's comedic relief. Both of them have a pretty good tandem. Where uh, Swarbrick is a writer, historian. He's a biographer who's been writing down some of Casca's deeds. And he's slowly realized over the course of his time with Casca that this guy is the scum of the earth. And so he finally stabs him in the back. And Casca has this kind of ignominious death where he's like struggling to get out his last words and doesn't and he dies. Yeah, Swarbrick was always kind of a funny character where he would, where Costco would tell him to write something down and he would 
not really caring. He would write it down. And then finally, when something heroic was happening from something other than Casca and uh, Swarbrick was writing it down, Casca was like, what are you writing? Like, stop. I didn't tell you to write anything down. <laughs> there was another funny scene with Swarbrick where when they're getting disarmed, when Casca and Friendly and I, I think just those two are getting disarmed as well as Swarbrick gets disarmed when they're being arrested. They take like swords and weapons for everyone. And then they don't know what to do with Swarbrick, so they take his pencil and snap it in half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like small things like that that have me coming back to read Joe Abercrombie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny. It, it is funny, and it's it's not trying too hard. Like, sometimes I feel like in Sanderson books, it's trying a little hard to be funny. Yeah, Joe Abercrombie humor is very tongue-in-cheek. It's very British humor, which makes sense because he's British. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. So Casca dies, and actually there's one more scene with Casca where you kind of like feel for him a little bit, although do you? I don't know. At this point, I'm not really feeling too much for him, but he struggles to kind of like talk about with Temple, like, you know, I didn't want my life to be this way. I, I There were so many points where I thought things would work out differently, and yet here I am, and like I'm you know, I'm an old man, and, and everything's falling apart, and it, you feel bad for him, but at the same time, you're like, well, you brought this on yourself, man. Yeah, he's just looking for reasons to blame, looking outward rather than inward to blame where his life ended up. But he had so many, so many times where he could have left the mercenary life if he wanted to. But I think ultimately, that's exactly where he wanted to be. It just wasn't how he wanted to end up. Fitting end for him. So Nikimo Kaska, famed soldier of fortune, has passed. So we will not see him in any future books. He was fun in the standalones mm-hmm. and as well. I mean, he appeared in the original trilogy as well, but yeah. primarily in Bester of Cold in this one. So Lamb, Shy, Temple, Row, and Pit head back to Square Deal, which is being rebuilt after the mercenaries took it all down. Temple goes into business there. Him and Shy are basically kind of settled down together. Shy buys the general store. Lamb is kind of in this weird in-between state. We don't really know exactly what's going on with him until Shivers shows up in town. So finally we have the resolution to the Shivers plotline. And at the time that I was reading this, I was getting towards the end. I was like, okay, everything's wrapped up, everything's wrapped up. And then I was like, oh, wait, Shivers still has mm-hmm. to happen, right? Because this plotline hasn't happened yet. I can't believe I forgot about it. But finally, like at the very end of the book, there's not hardly anything left in the book. And finally Shivers shows up again. So before we reveal how this happens, because I'm sure listeners have no idea, before we reveal, Ryan, well, how did you think this was going to go down? Hmm. I'm trying to put myself back before I had read this. I didn't think they were going to end up fighting. I, I knew that Shivers would, I felt strongly that Shivers would turn around once again to try, because I think I had been alluding to that he was still possibly thinking about like just asking like Kerndon Craw and the heroes how he could be a good person. I knew that he was still thinking about it. So I didn't I, I didn't ever think that he was actually gonna kill Lamb. Whether or not they would fight and come to some sort of draw or stop at some point during the fight, I wasn't sure, but I didn't think Shivers was gonna kill Lamb or vice versa. I didn't think that Lamb would kill Shivers either. I agree. For some reason, I didn't see either one of these characters dying. And I saw Shivers walking away. And I think it's because we already saw it happen in the heroes with the moment with Garst, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. I didn't connect those two moments. But yeah, where where Shivers intentionally avoided that conflict. Yeah, Shivers is super deliberate. And he's a violent man, but he's also someone who picks his fights well. And he realizes that there's no point in fighting Lamb. And it seems like like Lamb's got these kids and it, like maybe from Shiver's point of view, Lamb's doing the right thing. We know that he's not as a reader, but from Shiver's point of view, he doesn't really know. I don't know exactly what his thoughts are here, but he decides Lamb's not worth killing. So we're just going to walk away. Yeah. Isn't it ironic that both times when Shiver's decides to turn a new chapter in his life, try to be a better person, it's after he after he met up with Logan or had his chance to kill Logan, for some reason, Logan always turns shivers in the right direction where nobody else can. <laughs> yeah, Logan's making the world a better place. And 
It's also funny that both Logan and Gost, after failing to fight Shivers, kind of go off in a huff because they wanted to. Yeah, they don't they don't get what they want. And so the very end of this book is Lamb packing up his things and saying he he gives an excuse. He says, I'm going to leave. And the excuse is you guys aren't safe here. Classic excuse for the hero. And I think Logan sees himself as the hero. But really, he just wants to fight more. Right. Like he's unsatisfied living this pastoral life. We don't know where he's going. There's been some theories. Some people think you joined the rebels. That could work out. Some people think he just went up north and, and jumped in a random fight. I guess we'll see. I've heard that we don't get the answer in a little hatred. Maybe later in the, the Age of Madness series, we'll get the idea of, of what happened with him. But I'm pretty much done with Lamb at this point. Like, the dude's a jerk. I'm fine with him dying in a ditch. Whatever. Yeah, I think it's just the Bloody Nine is so core to who he is. If he doesn't have the Bloody Nine as part of his life, then he just kind of becomes lost a little bit. And so, I mean, you say you're done with him. I would still like to see, I would like some resolution to why he is the way that he is. Maybe actually revealing what the what causes the Bloody Nine and having some sort of end. I was hoping at the end of the first trilogy that there would be some sort of reunion between Logan and Pharaoh. But now that we've gotten through the standalone books, it doesn't seem very likely. Yeah, interesting that we've got no additional details on Pharaoh. Almost all of the other characters we've seen or we kind of know what's happened with them after, but Pharaoh, nothing. There is one line from a book. I don't know if it was um, Best Served Cold or The Heroes, where I think it might have been Ishri talking about um, somebody was killed by a woman looking for vengeance. That sounds familiar. Okay. So we've got a, we've got one throwaway line. Yeah. Let me, let me look that up because I think it's an important thing, but I agree with you. I don't, I don't think I want any more viewpoints from Logan. I would like him to be dead at this point. I would like to know how he died. I would also like to know what was going on with the bloody nine. Was it a demon? How does that work exactly? I've always wanted more details on, the backstory of the magic and the lore and all that stuff. So I think that would be a good way to explain more. Yeah. So I looked up the quote and it's in best served cold. Ishri comments, my brother was killed by a woman seeking vengeance. And that's it. That's it. So maybe we'll get more. It would be hard to see Joe Abercrombie not coming back to Pharaoh at some point. We should maybe know this, but I mean, neither one of us have read a little hatred or sharpens so there might be a short story in sharpens that gives us something from pharaoh or maybe in a little hatred in age of madness we get more information about what she's been up to in gurkle but i really hope that becomes part of the i would like to see a large-scale conflict again between gurkle and the union in this next trilogy coming up i feel like that's what the stand standalone books have been setting up a little bit is this larger conflict between the Union and the Gurkish Empire, also possibly Monza, Moncada, Moncado, and maybe the old Empire too. Right. Like in this next trilogy, can we get all of these players, the, the main players in these original standalones? We've now developed them enough. So let's see them come on screen in the next books in full force. And now that we've had the time to know what's going on with each of them, they can start doing cool stuff because they've always yeah. been, they've already been expositionized. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a wrap for the book. Let's talk some worst of the best from Red Country. Let's uh, each one of us has a moment that we liked a lot, except for like one thing that was maybe kind of took away from it. So Ryan, you have such a moment. I think my moment was that the last part, the exchange between Shy and Logan or Lamb. I think this is m my case throughout all of the books that Joe Abercrombie writes, at least the standalones, where I just really want something better for one of the main characters like Logan, somebody who's I really liked throughout the first trilogy. And this book, I grew to like him less and less. And at the end, I was just like hoping there would be some sort of redeeming redeeming moment for him. Like he just decides 
put it all away to help shy and temple and the kids but nope he decides to be selfish at the end and goes off to do who knows what which isn't what i wanted for logan slash lamb so you were still hoping for good things for him but by this point he was already dead to me and i was (laughs) fine with him dying in a ditch yep yep that's exactly right (laughs) my worst of the best moment is with the fellowship so there's this fun chapter in the fellowship where you get all these different viewpoint characters happening so it's like the chapters through each of their different viewpoints and it goes from one to the other and they're kind of all talking about the same things and it's a neat transition joe abercrombie has thrown these in to several of his books and i always really like them i think it's a a really fun way to read through it's something that i haven't seen in other authors but this chapter i struggled with because there were so many members of the fellowship and their names were all so similar And some of them were so unimportant to the larger plot that even though I liked the Fellowship as a whole, I just wanted them to be fleshed out a little more. And there wasn't quite enough space in this book for the amount of additional characters that were added in here. So that's my worst of the best. What happened over the course of that chapter? I can't remember that. They were just kind of like plodding along and and talking. So it didn't have the same epic scale as in the heroes where you're in the middle of a battle and you you kind of flow from a person who died to the person who killed them and then how they die no it it wasn't quite on that scale and there's another really good chapter in last argument of kings towards the climax of that book that does this as well so didn't have that feel but it still had that fun feel of like connecting things to different points of view and you're seeing someone through different points of view. So you're seeing someone who's described in one way, and then in the next page, you see the same person through someone else's point of view described in a different way, and it's just fun. Yeah. So maybe it w- you liked the concept, but you just didn't like how it was pulled off in this book? More so that I just struggled with the number of characters, and I thought that some of them were irrelevant. And even though they were nice people, they just didn't have quite enough time in mm-hmm. in the book because the red country was one of his shorter books yeah okay all right so that is a wrap for our review of red country if you want to hear more from phantology check us out at phantology books and at www.phantologybooks.com we're on discord we're on patreon we have sweet merch now check it all out so brian thank you i will see you next time see you then steven